Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 57, Revelation, Two Eagles and a Vine. And the following is a sermon that I preached June 17th of 2018, um, a handful of months actually before I even began the Unbinding the Bible podcast. And I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and when we landed in chapter 4, Jesus begins to compare the kingdom of God to a large tree that grows up and provides shade for the birds of the air to come and make nests in its branches. And it's actually a reference back to a passage in the book of Ezekiel. And I spend a little bit of time in this sermon explaining why it matters that we know this Old Testament context. And I've decided to insert it here for a couple of reasons in the podcast. The first is because I actually take a decent amount of time to recap major portions of the Old Testament story that are helpful particularly as it relates to Israel's constant struggle with other kingdoms and finding refuge and safety in some of those kingdoms. And then, of course, the relationship that that provides for us today as we look at the book of Revelation and as last week's episode talked about the kingdom of this world and even as that kingdom manifests itself in America as a nation— This is not to pick on America per se. This is simply to remind all of us that the kingdom of God is something very different from the kingdoms of this world. And so I've decided to insert this sermon because it will remind us as the week before on the podcast did that to be faithful to Christ means finding the end of our lives or of the things that we really think bring us life or some of those things that we truly fear losing because we don't know what's coming. And we oftentimes miss many of the great things that God has in store for us because we are reluctant to let go of the things that we have um, in order to trust Him to provide for us richer and better things that we don't yet have. And so I really thought as I was thinking about this week's episode and about the direction that we're headed in the book of Revelation, Um, An additional um, sermon on these topics will be really beneficial to you. I'm pretty confident that you're going to be challenged by this. I hope that it is clear. And as usual, would love to hear feedback from you if you would like to offer that. So let's just jump right in. Two eagles and a vine. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shades. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the gospel of the Lord. 
Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, thank you for speaking to us at all. And may we have ears to hear you as you speak with us this morning about strange sounding things on the lips of Jesus. Guide us, we pray, into our own hearts to see what you have to teach us there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. With what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? What a great question. What a great question. And thankfully for you and me, Jesus does not show up on the scene in the Gospels or during his own life with a bunch of imaginary ideas ready to teach the people. In fact, when Jesus poses a question like, what parable shall we use to describe the kingdom of God, he's reaching back into something that he grew up hearing about. And it's something that Lisa read for us when we began our service this morning from actually a strange book of the Bible called Ezekiel, which unfortunately for Christians, very, very few people read Ezekiel. And because very few do, most people don't have a lot of idea what in the world Jesus is talking about when he comes in the Gospels. And so this morning, I've entitled this message actually not from Mark 4, but rather from Ezekiel 17, because this is exactly the context that Jesus is reaching back into when he says, where are we going to find a parable to tell you all what I'm about to tell you? How are you going to understand me? And the only way to do that is to understand Ezekiel. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Ezekiel 17 because we're going to look at it in just a second. But before we do, let me just give for you a general overview of Old Testament, how it relates to what Jesus is about to say. You know the story. So let me just repeat it to you with slightly different words. God called his people out of slavery in Egypt, defeating Pharaoh and bringing them to Mount Sinai where he entered into a relational covenant with his people. We call it the law. But far from being just a list of rules, it was rather saying, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, and I'm the God that hears the cry of the oppressed, you, when you're enslaved to other people, the Egyptians, and I pull you out of that life, which you hated, and I did too, I want to then show you what a relationship with me would actually look like that, remember, hates oppression, loves justice, wants to treat the world differently than the way you were treated by Pharaoh. That's the relational agreement that God enters into with Israel through the book of Exodus and ultimately through the book of Deuteronomy. Again, unfortunately for Christians, dull reading. Oh, I almost would consider it my calling in life to make sure that you know that it is not dull that it is actually some of the most riveting reading and en entering into understanding the character and nature of God that you'll ever come across. But we don't have time to do that today because we can only do one chapter in Ezekiel. So I'm behind myself already. Let's move on. So Israel goes into the promised land and they eventually set up some kings who are there to lead the people just the way God did when he led them out of Egypt. And if you know the story of First and Second Kings, it's a really sad story. David comes to the scene after a bad king, Saul, and David does some good things, but then he does some poor things, and the kingdom eventually splits into two after Solomon, and then the, the Solomon's son split the kingdom in half, and there is good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, 
And the prophets begin to come, not predicting the future primarily, but rather telling the people of God, remember this relational agreement you entered into with the Lord who promised to bless you if you would obey him, but promised to discipline you if you didn't? You're not doing what you said you're supposed to do. And punishment is coming. And the language that the Bible uses to describe punishment is exile. You will be taken captive into a land that is not your own, a language where the people there do not speak your language. They do not treat you the way I would, but this is what's going to have to happen if you do not repent. Most of the kings and most of the people do not listen to the prophets. They simply don't listen. They think that the way they're living is perfectly fine and that the prophets are just a little bit on the strong side and it's not really that big of a deal. And so they ignore them until the prophets ramp up their word that Babylon is going to come and is going to remove you from your land and take you to their land. And finally, the message begins to sink in. But instead of the people and the kings recognizing that the reason Babylon is going to come and remove them from their land is because of their sinful choices. Instead of realizing that, they only see Babylon as a threat to the perfect life they have with their God in Israel. And so they do the only natural thing possible. They go look for other kings and other nations who are stronger than they are and as equally as strong as Babylon to fight for Israel against the Babylonians. And wouldn't you know it, they pick Egypt. They pick Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, who's just a word for the king of Egypt. They pick him because he's strong, he's mighty, and he could fight for them. And they forget what else comes with his fighting power. Oppression, the oppression that they experienced at his hands for 400 years before the Lord pulled them out. And so this story continues for hundreds of years. And let me just cap it all off for you at the very end. In roughly 608 BC, Nebuchadnezzar rises to power as the king of Babylon. Many of you know his name. He shows up in lots of the stories of Daniel. Side note, he shows up in the stories of Ezekiel as well. So if you want to follow that, we'd love to have some discussion with you, but that's for a later day. In 608, he becomes the king. He comes into Jerusalem and says to them, sure, I'll let y'all live here, but you're mine. Like, I own you now. And the Lord said, this is part of the plan. Some of the kings listened. Most of them didn't. And so he sacked one particular king, Jehoiakim, and made his son, Jehoiakim, the new king of Israel, right? Love names. If you want a good research for finding a great name for your pet, maybe a name for a future son, Old Testament prophets and kings, great place to go. It's really a lot of fun. But if you keep them all straight, that's part of the challenge. But this king doesn't like Nebuchadnezzar. And so he rebels against him by fleeing to Egypt. So the king sends a bunch of raiding armies in and they yank out many of the elite people in Israel. Daniel is one of these. And he pulls them captive to Babylon and leaving the poor of the land to just stay there and wait to see what happens. He appoints his son Jehoiakim to reign in his place and he only reigns in Jerusalem for three months until he decides that he wants to listen to the prophet's words of warning. And here here are some of the prophets and what they say to the people. Isaiah chapter 30, about a hundred years before the exile to Babylon. Here's what Isaiah says. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, 
to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of your, to your humiliation. Later in the chapter, it says, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. Or then Jeremiah, maybe some 85 years after Isaiah says this, and to the people you shall say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. This is what the Lord has offered. This is because of you. Go here. Trust me. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Jehoiakim, after three months of reigning as king, decides, okay, that's, that's good. He gives up. He gives up his family. He gives up his children. He gives up his servants. He gives up his royal house. And he willingly goes with Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then sets up another king, this guy's uncle, his name's Mataniah, and he renames him Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is the king that Ezekiel is prophesying to while Ezekiel is actually in Babylon. Now, I'm sorry if that bored you. I hope that wasn't. I'm trying to give you a good context for this because if we don't understand this, Jesus' words will make no sense. And if they make sense to you without this, then you are not reading them correctly. I'm trying, king, but there's a lot to tell. So... Let me turn in my own Bible to Ezekiel since I told you to go there. Nebuchadnezzar sets up Zedekiah as the king and leaves him in Jerusalem with some of the poorest of the land. A few years into his reign, he comes in and rips out another group of people. One of those is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is sitting on, next to the river in Babylon five years into the exile on his 30th birthday. And he starts writing the book we know as Ezekiel. It's a sad story. The guy's from the priestly family. He was supposed to be inducted into the priesthood at age 30. He's in Babylon, outside of the land, away from the temple. Not the kind of place you want to be. But the reason he's there is because for generations, people have failed to know the Lord and want to follow him correctly. And so here's the way the story goes. Let me just sum it up instead of reading it for you. <laughs> no, I take that back. It's quicker if I read it. Here we go. Here we go. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took off the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it into a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters he set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. 
And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Okay, here's what's happening in this story. One eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, plucked a twig off of what we're, co- what we're told is a cedar of Lebanon. Now, don't get mixed up with your geography here. These are symbols. Israel's temple <clears throat> was built with the most beautiful lumber known to mankind at the time, cedars from Lebanon. Lebanon cedars mimicked and resembled royalty and beauty and splendor and majesty. And so when Jerusalem builds its temple in Jerusalem with the cedars from Lebanon, Ezekiel is here in the parable simply calling Israel Lebanon. You can't miss that. If you do, this parable makes absolutely no sense. He plucks off a cedar from Lebanon, which is a symbol for Israel, and plants it in fertile soil, Babylon, and he tends to it. As a result, it becomes a low-spreading vine and its branches turn toward the king of Babylon, which is what Jeremiah said you need to do. But then this vine bends its roots toward another eagle, Pharaoh, and he shoots forth branches toward him from inside the land of Babylon. This is the picture. Now, this isn't too hard for us to grasp once we get in and maybe ask a few questions, but eagles, eagles are always symbols of royal power strength, splendor, eagles, you know, keen eyesight, clear-sightedness, courage, strength, immortality. They're often referred to as kings of the skies. We still think the same way today. Some viewed them as messengers of the highest gods. They're not only royalty, but kind of like divinity, right? Way above everything else, way up in the skies, way up in the heavens. So kings in battle were often described as eagles with outstretched wings. Listen to the way Habakkuk, who was a a contemporary of Ezekiel, listen to the way he describes the Babylonian attack on Israel. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. Right. Powerful, mighty, big nations. Even today, this shouldn't be too hard for us to understand. America has a symbol of a bald eagle. Why do we have that? Well, because of bald eagles signify long life, great strength, and majestic looks. I mean, it's a similar concept. And Assyria, Babylon, Rome, and us, like, they all used eagles as their symbol. But what God says to his people in verse 9 is this. Say, thus says the Lord God, Will this vine thrive? Will the first eagle, and I'm going to insert this for your help, will the first eagle not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It won't take a strong arm or many people to pull it up from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? He then goes on to explain what I just explained to you. The eagles, one being Pharaoh, one being Nebuchadnezzar, this vine being Israel, which we get throughout the Old Testament a lot. Here is what is happening in the picture. The people are being threatened with something that they have never seen before. Exile, away from all that they know, all that they love. The place where their God dwells, 
where they live with him in safety. Their own disobedience has led them here, or else at least the disobedience of its leaders. And the people are genuinely afraid of what will happen if they leave God's place. Will God be in this new place? What will our life be like in the land of the unknown? This is what is happening in the story. And when I read this story and I try to map it onto my own life through the lens of what Jesus says, which I'm about to get to, I'm led to a couple of conclusions. Change is hard for many people. It was the same with them. It's the same with us. And yet it's not change so much that we resist. It's loss. Many of us are afraid of the life we know coming to an end. We're scared. We don't know what this other life will be like. We don't want to lose what we know. We don't want to lose what we love because people love what they know and they know what they love. But loss involves the uncomfortable reality that what's ahead is something I don't know and could be something I don't love. No thanks, we say. I like things fine just the way they are. Yeah, but when life still seems to be heading down a path we don't like, our tendency, not unlike Israel before us, is to fight against it. We gather our forces and make our arguments against losing what we know, the life we've grown comfortable with. Many of us are afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of exposure. And like Israel before us, we might even try to secure Egypt's power. The very power that once oppressed them, but at least it was a power strong enough to prevent the death of all that we've clung to for so long. Israel only knows life in the land, life under the blessings of the Lord. So naturally, Israel is afraid of that life coming to an end. They don't know what blessing would even look like outside the promised land. As far as Israel is concerned, life outside the promised land is death. And many times we feel the same way. Change equals loss equals death. In her article, When Change is Out of Control... Margaret Wheatley says this, It is possible to prepare for the future without knowing what it will be. The primary way to prepare for the unknown is to attend to the quality of our relationships, to how well we know and trust one another. This is what the Lord wanted Israel to do with him. To trust him. Not their status, not their land, not the life they love, him. And this is the context where the Lord promises something better for his people. Look with me in Ezekiel 17, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out 
Ah, so we had two eagles in the first part, one Nebuchadnezzar, one Pharaoh, referred to as eagles, taking a cedar or a, a twig from the top of a cedar. Now God's saying he's going to do it. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Right back here to majesty and splendor and beauty and glory. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Now, wait a second. That sounds awfully familiar to something Jesus just read or said in, in Mark chapter 4. And here's what I think Jesus means. It's the death of what you know, your way of life, in order to willingly enter into a new life that the Lord has waiting for you on the other side. We must go with him through death so that we can come out with him into resurrection life on the other side. I don't know when you read the Gospels and Jesus speaks words, understand that they're coming from a well of, of insight that he has into the character of God. The idea behind life, death, resurrection, new life, that is Jesus. This is what he's all about all the time in both what he does and what he says. So this is why Jesus is, begins his parable with an explanation of small seeds being planted and growing into trees that are even larger than every other garden plant. Ezekiel calls it a giant cedar. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. And in his kingdom, small, seemingly insignificant steps of faith in the kingdom's king will result in life that springs up in ways bigger and better than anything that's come before. And I want you to look, both in Ezekiel 17 or Mark 4, whichever, who benefits when this happens? The birds. Jesus says in Mark 4, 34, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Who benefits? From this willingness to embrace death in order to find life, God's creation benefits. The good world he originally created us to rule over, to cultivate and to keep, to care for, protect, and cause to flourish. This is why we're here. We're not here simply to preserve our own lives the way we've always known them. We are here, as was Jesus before us, to willingly follow our king into places of death so that we might enter into new life with him on the other side. Life that brings blessing, not just to us, but to all the creation. And you say, okay, well then what does this have to do with me? I think a couple of things. Israel had themselves to thank or to blame for the situation they found themselves in. There are many, many people, Christians as well, Christians who thankfully by God's grace are covered under the blood of Christ for the sins that we commit in our own lives. And yet Christians do not find themselves exempt from difficult circumstances that they enter into as a result of their own selfishness, sinfulness, 
and disobedience. What do you do when exposure, revealing the heart that's within, is frightening to you? Seeing what is really on the inside, are you tempted to flee from the natural consequences of those actions? Are you willing to look elsewhere to get your mind off of the consequences and grasp back for Egypt and begin to oppress those around you with your good-sounding arguments as to why you're not really the cause? What if someone else around you is making decisions that are inviting change and loss into your life? When change or loss come and we want to prepare for the unknown, the only way it can happen is to recognize that the Lord behind it all is interested not simply in our lives remaining the growing vines that they are, but rather producing a vine that is so large that the birds of the heavens will come and nest in its shade. Resurrection life is precisely what Jesus is all about, but it comes through death. It comes through uncomfortable circumstances where you are really required to trust the Lord that there is life on the other side. That I'm willing to let go of what I know and what I love, not because I'm confident that I know that something's going to be better, but because I know the Lord who's inviting me into something better. That is the Christian life. That's the life of hope. There is no other life because change will always come. Loss will always confront us. And it did not click with me until just a few years ago. I thought I handled change well. I was blind. And it isn't because I don't like change. It's because I don't like loss. I'm afraid of losing the good things that I have. So even though I know some of what I have is not great, it's better than what I know I don't know. And so I fight. And I reach. And what does God say? Is that vine going to thrive? They're pulled in two directions. They don't know which way is up. So what does he invite you to do? Trust the one who does. That's what Jesus is offering to his people. And he's reminding them of a time when they were competing between kingdoms. Which kingdom is going to bring my salvation? Which kingdom in its mentality is going to provide for me? Which kingdom is going to let me thrive? And you know what Jesus says? It's the kingdom that it willingly embraces death. Death of all its hopes, all its dreams, all its trusts, in order that I, Jesus, might bring new life to you. Man, that's exciting. Because that's what he wants. Relational intimacy, trust, and fellowship. That's what Jesus is after. Because his plans for you, his plans for me, his plans for this church go way beyond us. We have to believe that. Jesus' entire life went beyond him. That's what he's setting us up to do and to be. God, show us what it looks like to set our lives up in such a way that the creation itself benefits because of the change and the loss we were willing to endure all because of you. 
That's the challenge. It is not easy and it is not simple, but it is so worth it. And so there it is, two eagles and a vine. And as I said in the introduction, I hope that you were encouraged by this particular sermon. I did think that it fit really well with the direction that John is taking in the book of Revelation and the direction we're trying to take as we're doing our best to follow him and know what that means actually to follow Jesus and as we follow John's train of thought in the book of Revelation. So that's all the time we have for this week. That was the entire episode. Again, just a sermon uh, to try to show you the way that these things can not only be taught, but also preached and um, looked into in our own lives and hearts as we want to open ourselves up to be able to follow Jesus. So I'm so glad that you're continuing to tune in. If you would, please go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast and give me a rating or a review or both. Um, Thank you again to those who are continuing to support the podcast on a monthly basis. That's a huge encouragement. I'm actually getting ready quite possibly to go purchase a microphone with some of the money that's come in. Um, That way I can begin to do some interviews over over the internet and uh, try to bring in some more voices who can encourage you in the same direction that, that I've been able to do so far on the podcast. So have a great week. Talk to you next time.